from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 22nd. Today, what it means to be an earthling. Congress tries again to rescue small businesses. And our coronavirus dreams. Today is the 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day. Science reporter Sarah Kaplan has been thinking about what it means to be a good citizen of the Earth in 2020. On April 22nd, 1970, millions of Americans went out into the streets for what was a pretty unprecedented demonstration in defense of nature. At the time, environmentalism wasn't really a concept that was widely acknowledged, and there was a pretty general practice of disregarding the effect of our activities on the environment. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day. That all motivated people to come out and protest for the environment, kind of for the first time. And, you know, at the time it wasn't intended to be a yearly thing, but, you know, 1971 came and they went back into the streets. And, you know, initially after Earth Day, a lot of progress was made. In the decade following that first Earth Day, America got the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Environmental Protection Agency was established. But there are still some unsolved problems. There's some unfinished business from that first Earth Day. And now, 50 years later, I wanted to talk with people about what are the questions we still have to answer? What are the lessons we still have to learn? And from talking with activists and scientists and you know people who make environmentalism their life's work, the thing that kept coming up is this idea that we still haven't really figured out how to live on this planet in a way that is respectful of the planet and the way the planet works in a way that acknowledges our interconnectedness with other species and also that acknowledges how much we rely on other kinds of life. We need to learn to be better earthlings. Step one is to understand how the earth works, you know, what what we come from. The rules that govern nature have been developing for 4.6 billion years, as long as this planet has been around, and we've only been on it, you know, a few hundred thousand years. And so understanding the the processes that have shaped the Earth, the, the cycles, like the carbon cycle, right? I mean, it is a rule of nature, a rule of physics that... You put more carbon into the atmosphere and it traps more heat. And the trapping more heat changes the chemistry of the ocean and it changes the the climate on land. And that humans have to sort of figure out how to adapt our lifestyles in accordance with those rules, not the other way around. And I think the other lesson is that the way things are now are not necessarily the way that they're always going to be. And this moment in the middle of this 
huge public health crisis that has really exposed a lot of our vulnerabilities, exposed a lot of inequality in our society. Maybe it's a moment to think about how we want to be different. You know, we all talk about wanting things to go back to normal. But what if there's something that's better than normal? You know, what if we think a little bit differently about the world we want to create after this disaster? Maybe it'll be a world on which humans and other life can flourish more than we've done in the past. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. If you recall just a couple of weeks ago, Congress passed the biggest rescue package in history, that $2.2 trillion CARES package. So what Congress is trying to do now is to basically replenish some provisions of that bill because they've run out of money. My name is Sung Min Kim, and I'm a White House reporter for The Washington Post covering the intersection of the White House and Congress. This is supposed to be a quick bridge to help replenish some funding that had already run dry. But here's what's in it. It's about $310 billion to bolster this really popular small business lending program. It has about $60 billion for a separate small business emergency grant and loan program. It has $75 billion in help for hospitals and about $25 billion to new coronavirus testing programs. So something that was supposed to be pretty quick. Republicans wanted to just um, you know, bolster funding for that popular small business program by about $250 billion, balloon pretty quickly into something that is almost half a trillion dollars. And what was the argument that Democrats were making in terms of why this needed to be a bigger pot of money that is being handed out? So they say it's not just the small businesses that are suffering, that it is hospitals that need the funding and that you need to do testing in tandem with aiding businesses and the economy that is really hurting right now. And they got a lot of pressure from Republicans for holding up aid for small businesses. That so-called Paycheck Protection Program actually ran dry of funding last week. Small business owners were no longer able to apply for these programs. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi does have leverage here. She controls the House of Representatives. Democrats uh, do uh, do control the House and they do get some say here. And her and Chuck Schumer, Senate, the Senate minority leader, were united in the fact that it couldn't just be small businesses, that you had to expand it a little bit more, even if it meant that this popular small business fund ran dry for a couple of days. And I'm curious, what have the negotiations been like between Republicans and Democrats and between the Senate and the House on this? I mean, is there an attitude that, you know, this is a time where we need to put partisanship aside and really come together and just try to work out solutions as quickly as possible? Or has this been kind of mired in the animosity in Congress right now? 
Well, I feel ultimately anything in Congress gets mired in some level of partisan animosity. And I think the first major, major package, that $2.2 trillion CARES package that passed last month, really was a moment where there were, where there were definitely partisan tensions, but Congress acted pretty quickly to pass the biggest rescue package in U.S. history. But this one, I feel, got a little bit more contentious because Republicans just could not understand why Democrats would not pass a straight extension, a straight increase in funding for a small business program that was so popular that so many businesses across the country had applied for and really needed that money. But Democrats sensed a couple things here. First, like we said earlier, uh, Nancy Pelosi does hold some leverage here. And second, I think there is was some sort of an unsaid acknowledgement that there will almost certainly be future rescue packages, but it may not as be big and ex- expansive as what Congress has already passed. So you just try to squeeze everything onto something when you have a vehicle, when you have a legislative vehicle to move through Congress. And that's what Democrats did here. I think one of the the really stark things that we saw with the Paycheck Protection Program when it was rolled out earlier this month was that it was just tapped out so quickly that within days, sometimes within hours, banks were saying, look, we've already handed out as much as we have to hand out. And clearly the need is is so much more than, than the money that is available. So this new amount of money that's going to be put into this program, how significant will it be toward actually filling the needs and being able to make sure that every small business that is suffering right now is going to be able to get some help? Well, it's $310 billion, which is a little higher than the number that Republicans initially tried to pass. And Congress is definitely not committing to passing more just yet. But think of how quickly the money ran dry the first time. And there are so many other small businesses out there that will definitely be applying for these loans. And these loans uh, turn into grants as long as these small businesses apply a certain set of criteria set by Congress. So that's why these programs are so popular. And $310 billion is a lot, but we have an economy that is suffering here where uh, business owners need help maintaining payroll, maintaining rent, dealing with the supply chain, dealing with so many other business expenses that I would be floored if Congress didn't try to take another run at this or find other ways to help small business owners. This has by far been one of the more bipartisan, more popular provisions of the rescue package, which is also why it got kind of mired down in partisanship because it was such a universally agreed upon program by Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. But, you know, the Treasury Department and congressional officials will just have to see over the next several days, couple of weeks, just how fast this money runs out. I also think that it's interesting that one of the foundational ideas of this program or or the way that it was supposed to work was that people just wanted the money to get out of the door as quickly as possible, to have loans be granted extremely fast, to have money land into small business bank accounts really fast. But I think part of the problem with that is that this money is just going out essentially to the people who can file their applications most quickly. And I think in some cases, people have been really surprised by the kinds of businesses that have been awarded this money. And in some cases, chain restaurants or energy companies or 
companies that are publicly traded and and not necessarily the mom and pop shops that people are thinking about who are worst hit right now. And so it feels like this speed to get this money out the door also means that there's not an opportunity to just stop and take stock and say, wait, who actually needs the money the most? Like everyone is hurting right now, but who is hurting the most gravely? And, and there's, there's not really a step in the process to assess that. I think you're exactly right. And first of all, that assessment, that oversight is made difficult by the fact that they're just not here. They're not having hearings. They're not meeting directly with administration officials that, I mean, obviously they're doing phone calls, but they're not meeting directly with people who are administering this program to really figure out problems. I've talked to a lot of senators who are fielding a lot of phone calls from their constituents, particularly small business owners, but it's not the same as being able to talk to them in person and being able to gauge what the problems really are. And I think that's another thing that Democrats pointed out in saying, look, we see a lot of flaws with this program. Let's take a breath and see what provisions we can add to maybe uh, better administer this program. I mean, you you mentioned some of the problems, Martine. Another problem that has been mentioned several times is that if you don't have some sort of an existing relationship with your bank, it would be much harder for you to obtain a loan uh, through this program. There's definitely a desire on Capitol Hill to more efficiently run this program. We saw the stories about, you know, Ruth Chris Steakhouse getting a loan that they eventually had to return. But again, like just the physical act that they are just not here in Washington makes that so much harder as well to make sure all these programs are running efficiently. So what is going to happen next with this legislation? How quickly will this money actually be distributed to small businesses? And also, how is Congress going to vote on this or how have they been voting on this if they're not allowed to be in the same room with each other? So the Senate process was actually pretty easy. They passed it by unanimous consent. Senator Rand Paul, fiscal conservative Republican from Kentucky, did make some noise on the Senate floor on Tuesday to raise concerns about the mounting debt that Congress is putting on for future generations because of all these rescue packages. But any one senator can ask for a recorded vote where everyone has to be on the Senate floor and, you know, do the thumbs up or the thumbs down on on whether they support a bill or not. And Senator Paul said he wasn't going to do that. Um, he knows that the, the health risk that that causes for people who are back and for senators to have to travel, um, that is a less of a sure thing in the House, um, which is scheduled to take this up on Thursday. We're looking, you know, they have been preparing their members to come back to Washington to actually vote on this bill. But how it's being done is being really tricky, too, because, you know, being on the House floor breaks all sorts of social distancing guidelines. There's no way to be six feet from 400 other people on the House floor. So House leadership is getting creative in the ways that they could execute a roll call vote on the floor while uh, adhering to these public health guidelines. You know, obviously, if Nancy Pelosi and the leadership had their way, they would be able to agree to it unanimously where you don't have to bring in all these people back to Washington. But there, you know, there are 400 some odd people in the House and just corralling everyone to agree on such a massive package. It really is a tall order. Sungmin Kim is a White House reporter for The Post.
And now, one more thing from columnist Monica Hesse about why so many of us are having super weird dreams. One of my favorite metaphors that a psychologist explained to me while I was working on this story is that all of us have a natural repertoire of anxiety dreams that we return to again and again. She described them like a jukebox. So your A2 anxiety dream might be that you have to give a presentation and you're naked, or your B4 anxiety dream might be that your friends are all mad at you and you don't know why. So what we're seeing now is a lot of anxiety dreams, except they're overlaid with coronavirus. So maybe now you have to give a presentation, but the auditorium is full of people and you suddenly realize you should not be in a crowded space because it's dangerous. Or you're meeting a new person and suddenly you worry that you haven't washed your hands enough. One of my favorite ones involved a woman talking about how there were suddenly strangers in her house who turned into bugs and she had to trap them using her children's stackable toys. And of course, this is a metaphor for how we're all afraid of strangers and we're all afraid of bugs or germs that might be invading our private spaces. I think as for why we're having them, dreams are always a way for us to work through details that are lurking in our subconscious, but that we might not have the time or the inclination to work through in our waking lives. And so in our waking lives, a lot of us are just thinking about how to get through the day, how to homeschool our kids while working from home, while Uh, making sure our groceries are safe while making sure our elderly parents are safe. We're just trying to get through the day and we don't have time to think about the vast cosmic paranoia and, and, and frustration in all of this. And so when we go to sleep, our brains do it for us. So much of our lives all of the time is having different experiences from each other. And now we're in this period of time where none of us can be in the same room. But reporting this article made me feel like a lot of us are in the same bed because we are all having dreams that are really similar to each other in theme. And the themes are loving your family, wanting them to be safe, loving your community, wanting it to be safe. So we are all having dreams alone in our rooms, but we're having this national dream that is more like a nightmare, but also bringing us together. In a way, I hope we can retain some of that even when the nightmare's over. Monica Hesse is a columnist for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you've been finding our coronavirus stories helpful, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your podcast app. It makes it easier for other folks who are looking for coronavirus news to find our podcast. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 